<clears throat> Jesus feeds the 5,000. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the village and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who, was, who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. This morning, I just want to share a couple meals with Jesus. To be in his presence, to learn from him, to become more like him. And our first meal will be kind of like a light lunch before we dig into a big dinner with the second. And I'm excited to let you know that there is no weight required. Buford Church of Christ, party of a few hundred or so, your table is ready. So let's begin. Our first meal comes from the scripture reading, Matthew 14. It's been a long day in Jesus's ministry, lots of healing, lots of preaching, and there is a huge crowd that's hungry. The disciples gather the scanty scraps of food, and it is a sad collection of items for that many stomachs. And then they give the food to Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the following, that Jesus looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Of all the places where he might have looked, Jesus looked up to heaven. He could have looked at the food basket and its pathetic contents, but Jesus looked up to heaven. He could have looked at their wallets, why 200 denarii worth of bread would not feed such a crowd. But he looked up to heaven. He could have looked at the crowd and started counting 5,000 men, you must be kidding. But he looked up to heaven. And he could have looked upon his apostles, questioning, doubting, scared, scurrying about, but no, Jesus looked up to heaven and said a blessing. 
I see in heaven like Abraham before and believe what for me my God has in store. I see in heaven the moon and the stars. His power is limitless. It has no bars. And as I wonder at the sky, I'm amazed to dream how he who made all that wants me on his team. I see in heaven a king on a throne who not only reigns, but who cares for his own. I see in heaven his angelic army. If he's on my side, then what can harm me? I see in heaven the faithful of old who show it all works out that he's in control. I see in heaven a place with no fears, no needing, no dying, where he wipes away all tears. And I see in heaven something special indeed, a father who loves me, and that's all I need. So yeah, he does that with the fish and the bread, but just wait till you see what he does with the dead. Where do we look? Where do we look when confronted with the problems of this life? He looked up to heaven. That's a noise grinned the Grinch, that I simply must hear. So he paused, and the Grinch put his hand to his ear, and he did hear a sound rising over the snow. It started in low, then it started to grow. But, but the sound wasn't sad. Why, this sound sounded merry. It couldn't be so, but it was merry, very. He stared down at Whoville. The Grinch popped his eyes. Then he shook. What he saw was a shocking surprise. Every Who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presence at all. You see, it, it wasn't just that Jesus looked up to heaven, but observed that he also says a blessing. A blessing? Really? You guys have got to understand the absurdity of this scene. Im imagine that I have been preaching to you for hours all day long. I know that sounds exciting. And we're all just starving and past ready to eat and Kelsey, my wife, shows up with the dinner she has prepared for us. And it's the following. Two saltine crackers and five cheesy goldfish. 
I then take that meager meal from Kelsey, those two crackers, those five goldfish, I then hold it out in front of me and I close my eyes and I pray, blessed, blessed be thou, O Lord our God, the King of the world, who hath produced this food from the earth. Thank you, thank you, thank you for providing us with this feast. Amen. Craig, are you serious? Some in the crowd would exclaim. Others expect to hear me insulting or belittling my wife for the so-called supper she's put together. And still others would not be surprised if I curse God in that all-day frustration and fatigue. But that, that's not what we hear from Jesus. As we lean forward like the Grinch, expecting a sad sound, we instead hear something merry, a shocking surprise. With a, a measly five loaves of bread and two fish, Jesus is saying a blessing, thankful, content, praising his Father. Ebenezer Scrooge, under the guidance of the ghost of Christmas present, comes to the family home of Scrooge's mistreated clerk, Bob Cratchit. Cratchit and his family are finishing up their Christmas dinner with a pudding all too small for such a large family. Bob holds the withered hand of Tiny Tim in his own dreading that his son might be taken from him. The author Charles Dickens paints the rest of this unexpected scene. They were not a handsome family. They were not well dressed. Their shoes were far from being waterproof. Their clothes were scanty, but they were happy, grateful, pleased with one another, and contented with the time. And when they faded and looked happier yet in the bright sprinklings of the Spirit's torch at parting, Scrooge had his eye upon them, and especially on Tiny Tim until the last. You might already know how the rest of this first meal with Jesus goes. Miraculously, what start as, as just a few loaves and a couple of fish, it feeds the entire multitude, thousands upon thousands. Everybody eats until they're full and they even take up 12 baskets of leftovers. Now suppose all of this takes place right here on this place on the map. I mean, I got a question for you. How would you describe What's just happened at that place? What would you tell others? If you had only one sentence, what would you say happened there? That was the place where Jesus fed the multitude. That's the place where Jesus multiplied a little boy's loaves and fish. That's the place where Jesus worked one of the greatest miracles in all of his ministry. All those are good answers. However, as the Apostle John moves forward with Jesus' story, the Apostle has a, a need to make reference to that place. And I want you to observe what John says. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place, 
where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. In other words, John says, that's the place where everyone ate after Jesus says thank you. That's what he calls it. It's almost as if John views Jesus' thanksgiving as the crowbar which opens up the door to God's miraculous work. It all started when he gave thanks. Could it be that a thankful and grateful spirit is all that holds back the Lord's work in your life? Or, we might say this of John's note, a spirit of thankfulness in the midst of difficulty can make a bigger impact on others than any so-called miracle. Again, John says nothing of that place being where super-duper miracles occurred. Instead, it's just the place where they ate after Jesus said, thank you. This reminds me that people are watching. The, the Scrooges of this world have their eyes upon us. And we mistakenly think that the only way to impact their lives is to work wonders. That the only thing they will really see is the over-the-top miracle. But let us not underestimate the power of the grateful spirit, the, the intensity of the heart which is thankful in the storm of, of adversity. But my dear friends, that was only our light lunch. Let us move forward to our second meal with Jesus found in Luke 24. Two men are walking to a village named Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. The context appears to suggest that it's still the day of Jesus' resurrection. Don't miss that. The most awesome of Sundays in the history of the earth. And these two men, these two disciples who had thought that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel, they're trying to make sense of all that's happened. You see, Jesus died. Jesus died three days ago by crucifixion. But now there are multiple reports that his body can no longer be found at the tomb where he was laid. And some women are even saying they saw angels who said that Jesus was in fact alive. And so this all makes for the most interesting and riveting of travel discussions. Unbeknownst to this pair of, of walkers, Jesus himself comes up with them along the way and joins them. Over seemingly the course of hours, this Jesus in disguise explains to them the scriptures and how they, they point to all that has taken place regarding Jesus the Christ over the past 72 hours. To be honest, it's a beautiful thing to behold. We all would think of probably a hundred better things for Jesus to be doing on Resurrection Day than spending all this time with two random and unimportant dudes who we presumably have never met before. But it's classic Jesus, always surprising us with his tenderness and compassion to the unexpected and the overlooked, the least of these. To the great embarrassment of our children, Kelsey and I excessively flirt with one another. 
Wait, 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 let me, let me rephrase that. It would be more accurate to say that Kelsey flirts like a, a feather dancing and weaving and swerving through the wind, occasionally passing by or lightly brushing up against you if fortune smiles in your direction. And me, well, I'm nothing like that, quite the opposite. With me, there is no skill, no holding back and no art. If she is like the calligraphy pen in the hands of a, an expert, then I am like the Crayola permanent marker in the hands of a two-year-old. And I, I am amazed at her discipline and self-control, to be honest with you. But here's the thing that just drives me nuts when she flirts and then just casually, nonchalantly walks away and just keeps doing whatever she was doing. It drives me absolutely wild. It only increases my desire for her. It's intoxicating. It only leaves me wanting more. After lots of walking and lots of talking, we get to verse 28. So they drew near to the village to where they were going. Jesus acted as if he were going farther. What a fascinating detail at the end of the verse. Scholars agree that the word acted here is not in the sense of pretended. Instead, the idea is that if you were to look at how Jesus was acting, you would assume he was going to continue on his journey. Where was Jesus going? To whom was Jesus going? We'll never know, but again, it's classic Jesus. Let me show you what I mean. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. He meant to pass by them. He acted as if he were going farther two blind men cry out for mercy and Jesus appears to keep on going, passing by them too. And when a Canaanite woman begs him for that same mercy for her demon-oppressed daughter, Jesus inexplicably passes by with his words. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Ellicott thinks he's got it figured out. He writes of Jesus' intentions to keep going after reaching the village with the two men. This was, it is obvious, the crucial test of the effect of the Lord's previous teaching. Whether that be true or not, I'm just awestruck as I watch Jesus. He is a master of this art at this dance. Don't you see? He is acting so much like the flirtatious feather. Such skill. I mean, with some, with some people, you give them the Zacchaeus treatment. Yo, little man, get down here. I'm inviting myself over. I'm staying at your house today. But much more often with so many others, he just moves on. He just passes by, keeps going. He doesn't barge in. He's not needy. He's not desperate. He's not out of control like some hormone-crazed husband. And I think that we in evangelism as ones who are sharing Jesus with the world today, I think we can learn something from this. There is a difference between sowing seed and force feeding. There's a difference between offering and bludgeoning to death. Give them a taste 
and see what the Word of God can do and will do in their hearts. Jesus gave these two men some of the good stuff as they walked together on that road on Sunday. Let's see what will happen. He acted as if he were going farther, verse 29, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. They urged him strongly. King James Version, they constrained him. They insisted, they begged. One commentator calls it like this. He says, The text reminds us that Jesus Christ is glad to be forced. After their hours-long wrestling match, the man says to Jacob, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob responds through the pain of an out-of-joint hip, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob would not be denied. Blind men, be quiet. When rebuked to be silent, they cried out all the more. And the Canaanite woman would not take no for an answer, begging Jesus even for the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And how much, how much I wish that we all had more of this tenacity towards Jesus. I mean, read the Psalms. Look at how many of them sound like wrestling matches with God. Where are you? Are you going to come through or not? Are you, are you sleeping? Where are you hiding? How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? Listen to me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of you might be saying, Craig, this sounds a little bit disrespectful if you ask me. Well, you know something? At least David and the other psalmists are talking to God and communicating with him trying to work through all the junk of this life with him. I mean, you know, I'll tell you what's disrespectful. It's ignoring him completely, giving him the silent treatment, like perhaps some of you have been doing. And so at the urging of these two men, Jesus goes in to stay with them. This brings us to verses 30 and 31. When he was at the table with them, Here's our second meal. He took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. As they're later sharing what happened, Luke records the following in verse 35. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. There was something about the way he did all that stuff with the bread that opened their eyes to finally seeing that this is Jesus, what might it be? What might we learn from this truth? First, Jesus is obviously a guest of these two men in Emmaus. Yet when at the dinner table with them, he takes on the role of host. At a Jewish meal, it is the host of the feast who's supposed to bless the bread, break it, and give it to others. When Jesus assumes the role and function of the host, it's then that their eyes are opened and they finally see Jesus. Do you not see the clear lesson here? So many of us invite Jesus into our homes as a guest. Don't you know? His presence is temporary, conditional. We display a few crosses here and there. We have some wall art that has something he said. 
we acknowledge him occasionally, but all the while we remain the masters of our homes and of our lives. <laughs> and we don't see Jesus. But it may be that if we submit and surrender, if we give up our rights as host and allow Jesus to take control and run with things, if we humbly and willingly and fully give up our homes to him, then it may be that we will finally see him in our lives, finally witness the fullness of his power, realize the truth of his presence, make him, though, the host, the master of the feast. Second, I must admit that I am astounded that they don't see Jesus while on the road. It's the place where I thought it would happen, on the road. After all, Jesus is reasoning and interpreting, showing them the scriptures, his knowledge, his wisdom, the way in which he crafts an argument. Wouldn't that be the kind of stuff that would tell them, this here must be Jesus? But it's not. They don't see Jesus until they recline at the same table with him, sharing a meal together, actually doing life together. Barclay describes it this way, it was at an ordinary meal, in an ordinary house, when an ordinary loaf was being divided that these men recognized Jesus. I'd like to think that as his disciples, one of our life missions is for others to likewise see Jesus in us, through us, for them to see Jesus. Could there be a lesson learned? Let us not mistakenly think that Jesus can only be seen, can only be seen through our well-thought-out biblical arguments, that he can even best be seen through the exhaustive and comprehensive Bible study. These things, as with the two men, they, they can, those things can cause the heart to burn within. They're good. But people may not see Jesus in us and through us until we, like Jesus, hit pause or wherever we were headed. Sit down with them, eat with them, and experience life with them. Third, and more generally, I'm reminded of this enormous blessing of sharing a meal with others. Jesus regularly ate with tax collectors and sinners. He developed a reputation as one who has come eating and drinking. They accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. On top of these things, I look at the example of the early church in Acts 2, 42-47, in an environment where persecution is minimal and jobs are seemingly put on the side for a temporary season. The disciples are spending their time in each other's homes and regularly breaking bread together. In other words, in the perfect church world, Christians are eating together all the time. Communion, fellowship, camaraderie, togetherness. I encourage you to look at it, Acts 2.42. To the early Christians, fellowship through meals together is mentioned in the same breath as stuff like prayers and Bible study. That's how important, that's how necessary, how regular, how noteworthy it was to them. 
of all things Jesus could be doing on Resurrection Day, the most important day in the history of the world, he takes a walk for a few miles, sits down to break bread with two uh, just seemingly random guys. That's pretty special. Powerful. Maybe it's time we all slowed down and did the same. In closing, I again find it interesting how Jesus has a way of doing things when he's invited as a guest. For these two faith-deprived disciples, Jesus restores their hope, fills them with enough excitement that they immediately leave for the seven-mile trip all the way back to Jerusalem. And way back at the beginning of his ministry, as a guest at a wedding in Cana, he turns water into wine. That invited guest, Jesus, water into wine to save the day again. And the message to me is clear. When you invite Jesus into your home and into your life, you end up getting blessed. He can take a disaster and turn it into something better than ever. He can transform depression and despair into hope again. He may look to you like he's just passing by, that he's going on farther. I think he would gladly stay, though, if you ask him. Just know that when you invite him as a guest, the path to blessing in your life can only come through making him host, Lord, Master. So we extend an invitation out to you. If you need to come to Jesus, have your sins washed away, there is no better day than right here, right now, as together.